Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Welcome to the third episode of the OECD Podcast series, Truth Hurts. My guest today is Bert Grön from the Netherlands. Bert is a former police officer and an activist fighting violence against women. He manages a shelter in the north of the Netherlands, and he is also the president of the European Family Justice Center Alliance. This alliance for hope and empowerment works across disciplines and organizations to address gender-based violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, and child abuse. Hello, Bert. Thank you for joining us. Let's start by hearing about your personal journey. What brought you to activism against gender-based violence? I was starting in, in my police career in the, in the late 70s. I was working in the police force. We had the central station in the Netherlands, in, in Rotterdam, and it was a place where a lot of drug addicts were staying. I think it was at the age of 21. I met a, a young girl. She was just 18. She was a drug addict, had a lot of problems. She had uh, an overdosis. And at a certain moment, she told me she was a victim of violence. She had uh, witnessed violence between the parents, a lot of problems. And I was really struck by it. And the strange thing, and I still remember it like yesterday, from that moment, I knew I want to go to the, we call it in the analysis, youth and vice squad. But I want to work with sexual assault cases and child abuse. Uh, struck by what, what she told me. About one or two weeks later, she was found dead in uh, in one of the uh, toilets of the central station. So, yeah, that was for me the, the, the one of the biggest lessons that I wanted to make it, it, a change. I want to do something about child abuse, sexual abuse. Domestic violence was not so known in that time. Uh, it was more child abuse and sexual abuse. And how how did that happen then when you decided you wanted to switch? Is it easy to just change into that kind of squad? Yeah, that's it's it's not so easy because in that time it was you have to just to wait for your time. I worked several years on the street. That gives you a lot of experience. You see a lot of things that that normal people won't see or won't experience. There are, are police officers that choose the the traffic uh, issues, and I chose to be one of the uh, the youth and uh, sexual assault uh, case workers. And uh, I must say, it 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 was. The best decision I ever made, and I did it for about 15 years. You learn from practice, but also from other professionals, from other uh, agencies, other services, other organizations, but also by following special courses on the backgrounds of child abuse, backgrounds of uh, children's behavior. I also became a forensic interviewer in that time for uh, children and young people who are uh, yeah, victims or witnesses of uh, severe crimes, mostly sexual crimes. Uh, that that uh, forensic interviewing is also one of the, the most rewarding things I did. But you must have seen terrible things of women's experiences. Do you lose all faith in humanity and in men particularly when you're confronted for 15 years with all those difficult cases? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. That Because I think one of the frustrations also from working on the street uh, is that in that time there was barely no attention to domestic violence or gender-based violence. And I think even the word gender-based violence that didn't exist in that time. And I remember that on some occasions, uh, women came to the police office uh, with big bruises in their faces and they were heavily beaten by their uh, abusive partners. But the day after, they came back uh, and they said, well, I want to withdraw my, my statement because he couldn't help it. Uh, he, he said sorry or he didn't take his medicine and, and, and we couldn't do anything about it. And that was quite frustrating. Nowadays, that's not possible anymore. But 
I still remember that that was a big frustration. And regarding your question about how to cope uh, with the, uh, the the horror that you see, yeah, I, I worked also for seven years in uh, international trafficking and prostitution, forced prostitution and child pornography cases. And the thing is that it's there, it's reality. It's not that it's somewhere on a movie, it's, it's reality. And that my motto was always, if you can help one child, one person from this horror, it's a person. And you know, you can't save them all, but it, it's, it's reality. And that's something that uh, keeps you, uh, yeah, keeps you uh, alive, let's say that way. And you just said that today you can't withdraw your complaints anymore. I didn't know that. Well, nowadays it's completely different. If a survivor makes a statement at the police office about an uh, abusive uh, relation, eh, about uh, assault, then if she comes back and she say, I want to withdraw it, eh, that she can say that. But the thing is that it's it's up to the prosecutor to decide what to do with it. And that's changed. And I think that's a good one eh, because, you know, in many cases, women are coming back to withdraw it on the, eh, because of the pressure of the abuser. And I think that uh, because if there's a case eh, and somebody is withdrawing their uh, the statements, it, it, it makes it more difficult eh, because you need the statements and you need evidence eh, to, to prove that, that something happened. Mm. But it, it, it gives you more the ability to get in touch with the survivor and to, to, eh, to discuss and to talk with her about, okay, what's the reason that you are withdrawing it? Eh? What is the reason that you won't uh, go further with your statement? And, and I think that's that's extremely important because we know that a lot of women are withdrawing their statements uh, just because of the pressure of the perpetrators, the abusive partners. Yeah. Let me ask you a difficult question, um, Bert. In those last couple of days, because of the trial in the UK of the murderer of Sarah Everard, who was a police officer, there's been a lot of talk about how well the police force is equipped to do this. Some people say there's a lot of misogyny that women who um, come and report are often not taken seriously. What is what is your view on this? Well, I can give you some examples from my police career. When I was working in the sexual assault cases, and especially in the international trafficking and forced prostitution, we had women from Eastern Europe that were forced to do prostitution in the Netherlands. And I remember that, that in some cases, we took them from the streets and we were talking with them. And after a couple of days, they were waiting to be raped by us. So I remember several times, and it were young women, sometimes 18, 19 years old, that they asked us, okay, when are you going to rape us? And then they said, to rape you? <laughs> what on earth are you talking about? And that's what they were used to in their own countries, that they were raped by police officers. That's horrible. And I don't think that's happening. Any, that, that, and I'm talking from uh, the 90s, early 2000. Uh, and I never forget that because it's very strange when a survivor uh, is, is from forced prostitution is asking you, when are you going to rape me? I know from the Netherlands, I think that most police officers are quite good equipped with knowledge and the tools to do their job quite good. And I think for most countries, that's the same, which is a horrible instance, like what happened in the UK. And... It gives a lot of issues with trust because normally you have to trust the police and the police officers. But in this case, yeah, the, the, there will be a huge lack of trust. And how do you think the police force can rebuild trust after such incidents? Well, I think that one of the biggest uh, issues is always to take the people that you talk to serious. And that's an important lesson I learned uh, in my police career. 
And of course, there are cases that there is a false accusation, but those cases are quite rare. If somebody is talking to you and expressing the fact that he or she is a victim of uh, sexual abuse or gender-based violence uh, or child abuse, you always have to take them serious. By example, when I did the uh, sexual assault cases, it was also uh, when, and especially we call them incest cases, when there was sexual abuse between fathers and daughters, people always wondered me because uh, when I asked the victim, okay, how come you never told anybody? The most common answer was nobody asked me. The strange thing was when you did the criminal investigation, a lot of family members, they, they say, yeah, we thought there was something wrong, but nobody ask the question and i think that's so important to ask the right question and i think that's something police officers can can do that sounds like we need more than that we need also a awareness campaign probably yeah yeah absolutely and luckily i know from the netherlands that in the last 10 15 years there were great uh, training programs for police officers uh, young police officers but also older police officers about the dynamics of domestic violence how to recognize them and how to deal with them and how to ask the right questions because i think that's that knowledge is extremely important uh, and and i know that that cases of, of child abuse and domestic violence and, and sexual violence are not the most let's say easiest cases because they are always quite difficult because of the dynamics and the structures that is happening in families and people say yeah it's a private matter it's not a private matter because it's a public matter How can you recognize it and, and acknowledge it? And I know that many more countries are doing that, training their police officers and police women to be more aware about the fact that it's a big issue in society. Do you have also one success story or a, a story which you're particularly proud of where you felt that you really could make a difference or something that gives you hope for the future? Well, I must say... The daily work that I do. Currently, I'm also working as a manager in the safe shelter and anonymous shelter in, in the no north of the Netherlands, working with uh, women and children who uh, are in, yeah, we call it code red situations, uh, extreme dangerous situations where there is a matter of life and death. And what I can see daily is that the work that we do there, the group workers that that are working there, are doing amazing jobs and. The thing is that you can help those people, you can help those women and those children by giving them attention and helping them to get back in their own life, giving them hope, giving them perspective on a, a life without violence. And I see that that's working. So I see daily the work that we do, it benefits, absolutely. And you are also the president of the European Family Justice Center Alliance, yeah. which is a very innovative model how to bring a different range of social services to survivors of violence. Can you tell us more about this model, how it works? Yeah, it started in the United States in early 2000. And it's a place where professionals work together on a part-time or full-time basis from one place. Professionals from different organizations, from police, from, from welfare, from mental health care, advocates, they are working in one place, in one building, and they provide their services from that place. And the beauty is that, and that's also what I learned, eh? you're asking for things that worked in my time that I was working with these teams. Working together with other people from other organizations gives you a lot of uh, extra knowledge. As police officer, I knew a lot about the justice. 
but I didn't know a lot about the social welfare or mental health care or youth care and working together with professionals from those areas, from those organizations and sitting in one room and discussing actual cases about, okay, how can we help this child? How can we help this, uh, this woman? Uh, either each from its own experience will give you a lot of new insights about the opportunities you have and the possibilities you have. And I think that's the beauty about working together. And the power from working on the one roof is that you can easily get in touch with each other. We all know that working together is extremely important. But if you work together and you have a meeting and you go back to your own organization, a lot of the agreements that were made are already gone. And when you're working in one building where you see each other daily, that is absolutely beneficial to the agreements that are made and the discussions that are, are made. And what we learned also is that only 25% of, of survivors are reaching out to the organizations, to the police or social mental health care. And we ask ourselves the question, how come that a lot of survivors, victims are not reaching out? And we learned that one of the uh, the issues is that they had to travel from organization to organization and tell their story over and over again and telling your story over and over again is each time is a new trauma experience and traveling from the one organization to another organization is also not very beneficial to step out of a horrible situation so we learned that when they go to one place and can tell their story and they are served by the police or social welfare it helps and that's a lesson we learned there are more than 180 centers uh, currently in the united states and also in europe it's growing uh, we now have uh, 14 centers and each are different it's not a copy paste model uh, because it depends on how the, the situation regional local or national is but it's the guiding principles that keeps us let's say uh, connected uh, and uh, it works it saves lives the alliance has built many family justice centers around the world you often use the motto, dream big, start small. What does that mean in practice? Dream big, start small. It means that you have to start with enthusiastic people. And sometimes it's a very limited group of people uh, because if there is in the beginning, you will see, uh, that's what we also experienced. Not all organizations are enthusiastic uh, because people think that's something new. People think that it's affecting their work. Uh, and that's what we, uh, in many cases, we see. But it's not something new. It's, it's just taking the best what you already have and bring it together. So it's not a new organization. It's only bringing together good practices and organizations that are doing already a great job. And that was also what happened in Belgium. They started with a, a small group of organizations and professionals that were enthusiastic. But in time, other organizations uh, and other professionals, they, they witnessed it and they saw that it was a success. So they, they came also along and said, well, can I join? Can I join? And I think that's the beauty. And now it's a two-floor center in the center of Antwerp. And it's absolutely uh, an eye-opener. And I can also uh, ask people, if you have the opportunity, go and see it with your own eyes. Visit it. Talk to the to professionals because they can tell you uh, the, what it helped them in their work. And, and everybody there is enthusiastic. I also want to make an announcement about our upcoming conference in uh, January. We always have every year our International Family Justice Center Conference in Europe. And we do a live session on uh, January 17th in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam. Uh, we will do a one-day conference about uh, intimate terrorism, because that's one of the most severe forms of violence. 
let's hope that lots of people are listening to us who are enthusiastic about taking the same path and opening family justice centers then. What do you think the OECD can contribute to spreading the message and promoting integrated service delivery for women who are uh, survivors of domestic violence? I think that a lot of connections in countries, the OECD is a big, powerful organization. And I think what the most important part is that we have also to do a lot of work on policy level. The thing is, a family justice center, you can't do it without the support of the policymakers, of the governments. It's something that the OECD can do, proving and showing policymakers about the fact that there is a way how we can do it. And it's not that it's the only way, because the Family Justice Center is a model, and we know that it's uh, absolutely helping in the approach of gender-based violence, and uh, the multidisciplinary approach is something that we all should do. Thank you so much, Bert, for talking to us today. For more information on the European Family Justice Center Alliance and its activities, you can visit www.efjca.eu. And to learn more about the OECD's work on violence against women, please go to www.oecd.org gender. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com OECD.